0: Romans chapter 7, verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am a flesh sold into bondage to sin. For what I am doing I do not understand, for I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh for the willing is present in me. But the doing of the good is not for the good that I want. I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I'm doing the very thing I do not want, I'm no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. the law of sin. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now our attention tonight specifically is going to be on those last two verses. What the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Alistair Begg, I think, helps us understand verse 3 pastor in cleveland and he has said eloquently i think that the law of god is not a ladder up which we climb to acceptance with god it's not a ladder up which we climb to a right relationship with god that is if we try to use the law of god the commandments of god as a step stool to heaven if we think of them as a list of rules which if we hit every rung will finally bring us back to God, if we think of them as a means of justification, we will be sorely disappointed. I say sorely quite intentionally because if we attempt to climb the law as a ladder to heaven, we will quickly find ourselves with an aching backside. The reason for that is because as we attempt to do what God says, we all find ourselves falling off the ladder more than we would care to admit publicly. We can't keep the commandments of God perfectly. So the commandments of God, whether they are the Old Testament commandments or the new, are not a ladder up which we climb to acceptance with God. And that's what Paul is getting at when he speaks here of what the law could not do. The law, no matter how hard you try to climb its heights, cannot save you. But then Paul says the real problem is not really with the law itself. The problem is with the people who are called to keep the law. He says, yes, in verse three, the law is weak, but it's not inherently weak. It's not as though God has given us this ladder that's poorly put together or constructed out of shoddy materials. No, he says the problem with the law is not the law. The law was made weak through the flesh, your flesh and my flesh. So to put this back into a metaphor, it's not the law's fault that you and I keep falling off the ladder. It's our own dead weight. It's the weight of our own sin nature that keeps pulling us head over heels and making us fall again backwards. So the law is weak, he says, but it's not intrinsically weak. There's nothing wrong with what God has commanded. What's wrong is that we are unable, and more than that, we are unwilling to do what He says. Every time we try to climb up and then end up tumbling back down the ladder, we are reminded how unwilling we really are. So the law's weakness is that it cannot save us. But the fact that the law cannot save us is also the law's genius. This is an amazing thing God has done. Now remember, He gave us the law after Adam sinned. God gave the Ten Commandments. He gave the other instructions in the Old and New Testaments, the law in general. He gave all those commandments after sin came into the world. So He knew when He started giving us rules for how we should live that we weren't going to do it. He knew we weren't going to keep the law. And so in that sense, He never gave the law in the beginning to save us. He gave us this ladder, in other words, not because He ever expected that anyone was going to make it all the way to the top, but He gave us the law Because he knew that as we tried to make it to the top, we would inevitably see how helpless we are. That's the genius of it. Through the law, Paul says in Romans 3.20, comes the knowledge of sin. And through the law comes the knowledge that I cannot save myself by all my do-betters and try-harders. Every time I try to get myself right with God by doing the right things, I find myself falling back down on my rear end. So the weakness of the law is that because I'm weak, the law can't save me. But the genius of the law is that because it can't save me and because it shows me my sin, it pushes me and drives me to the Savior. And then we thank God for the next clause in verse 3. What the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. So the law cannot save us. And those who have tried with all of our might to touch every rung of it, to do everything we're supposed to do, have come painfully to realize that the law can't save us. We've realized I am like Paul. I am sold into bondage to sin. I find myself doing the things I don't want to do and not doing the things that I do want to do. And as much as I try to climb out of this hole that I've dug for myself, I can't do it. Keep falling off the ladder. So we realize the law cannot finally reach to heaven. But what the law could not do, God did. How did he do it? Verse 3, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin. Now before we continue with Paul's primary train of thought here it's important that we pause in the middle of verse three and pay very close attention to the wording the precise wording of the phrase in the likeness of sinful flesh It may throw you for a loop what does that mean Jesus came in the likeness of sinful flesh is he just a likeness of human beings or is it saying that he came in sinful flesh what does it mean well, let me, let me just point out to you that this word likeness does not, in verse 3, simply describe the word flesh. It describes the words sinful flesh as they come together. In other words, Paul is not saying here that God sent his son in the likeness merely of flesh. If that's what he were saying, then that would indicate perhaps that Jesus did not become a man after all. He merely took on the likeness of flesh. He merely took on the physical appearance of man. But that's not what Paul says. And we know from the rest of Scripture that can't be what Paul means because we have passages like John 1 where we read in verse 14 about Jesus that the Word became flesh. He didn't just become the likeness of flesh. He became flesh. So what that means, again, for Romans 8.3 is that this word likeness can't simply describe flesh cannot be teaching that Jesus merely looked like flesh, that he merely looked like a man. Rather, the word likeness must be understood as describing these two words together, sinful flesh. You can't separate those two words, likeness of sinful flesh. That is, though Jesus did not merely take on the likeness of a human being, he did not just look like a human being, he actually became flesh. It is also true that he did not take on the sinful part of human flesh. In that case, He only took on the likeness of it. So in this regard, but only in this regard, Jesus merely looked like every other human being. The Word became flesh, but Jesus only took on the likeness of sinful flesh. So then Jesus looked outwardly just like every sinner looks. Looks like us, sinners. He had the same kind of body as us he was tempted with the same kind of temptations as us he processed his thoughts in the same kinds of brain kind of brains as we have yet all these things without sin and because jesus actually took on real human flesh but without sin and because that's what paul is saying here then he was able to become verse 3 again an offering for sin since he came in the likeness of sinful flesh, he was able to be an offering for sin. It's important. It's something that's elementary to most of us, but it's important. Jesus had to come in the likeness of our flesh, sinful flesh, actually becoming man, but not sinful, so that he could die for us. And you all know, I think, it's just common sense that human sin, if it's going to be paid for, cannot be paid for merely by animal sacrifices. Those things can only be symbols. Human sin has to be paid for by human death. So Jesus came to become human flesh and blood without sin so that he might die as an offering for sin. And therefore, when God condemned Jesus with the condemnation that we deserved, Paul can say he condemned sin. In the flesh. He laid our sins on Him. And sin is condemned. Sin is killed off. In Jesus' body. And on our behalf. So that the penalty and the potency of sin for us is no more. If we believe in Christ. If we are in Christ Jesus. Sin can no longer drag us down to hell. And there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God sent His Son into the world in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin and condemned sin in the flesh so that you don't have to be condemned. But I want you to see in verse 4 that there is another so that that grows at the foot of the cross. Yes, God condemned sin in the flesh of Jesus so that there would be no condemnation for us. But he also condemned sin in the flesh of Jesus so that, verse 4, the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. What does that mean? Jesus died so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Well, there are a number of commentators who believe that what verse 4 is saying is really just repeating the truths of verses 1 and 2. So someone says, well, what does it mean that Jesus died so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us? Well, they say... What it means is this, since we haven't kept the requirement of the law, Jesus has kept it for us and Jesus died in our place so that we don't have to be condemned for not keeping the law so that when God looks at us, he sees us as though we had kept the requirement of the law. He looks at us as though the requirement of the law had been fulfilled in us now. That viewpoint, that interpretation of verse four, namely that what it's saying is just repeating that when God looks at us, he sees what Jesus has done on our behalf, that the requirement of the law had been fulfilled in us because of Jesus. That viewpoint states a very important biblical truth. It is right to say that because Jesus kept the law on our behalf and died our death sentence We are considered righteous in God's sight. We are treated as though we had kept the requirement of the law. We are treated as though the requirement of the law had been fulfilled in us. It's called justification. It's one of the most important and one of the most soothing concepts in the Bible. But what we're asking right now is, is that what Paul is teaching in Romans 8, 3 and 4? Is he teaching justification here? I don't think so. And I'll give you a few reasons why, a few grammatical reasons. Just notice a few things here in these verses. First, notice that Paul describes the requirement of the law not as being fulfilled for us, verse 4, but as being fulfilled in us. He doesn't say so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled for us, but he says so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Now, that's a gigantic clue in a very short word, the word in, that Paul has now shifted his thinking. In verses 1 and 2, he was talking of what Jesus has done for us on our behalf. But now in verses 3 and 4, he shifted and he's talking about what God is going to do in us and what we are actually going to do in his strength. It's not what he's done for us, but what he is doing in us. Another clue That this is what Paul means, he's talking about what's happening inside of us, comes from these words, might be, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. So when Paul here is speaking of the fulfillment of the requirements of the law, he is speaking about it as a present potential, might be. Not as something that's already been accomplished, has been. So if he were referring in verse 4 to what Jesus has already accomplished on our behalf, namely justification, he would have spoken in the past tense. He would have said something like this. Christ has died. He has condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law has been fulfilled for us. But he speaks instead in the present tense. He says God sent His Son into the world as an offering for sin and He condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be Right now, fulfilled in us. Why does he speak in the present tense? Well, I think it's clear because the fulfilling of the law that he is now talking about has not yet been completed. And the reason it's not yet been completed is because it's happening in us, not simply for us. So the law keeping that is happening in Romans 8, 4 is spoken of in the ongoing present tense because it's our law keeping. With Christ's help, but it is us obeying God now. Furthermore, just another reason why I think that Paul's Christ done is by beginning in the latter half of verse four, Paul begins to to give a long paragraph about how we should walk and what we should do, and that would frankly be a non sequitur. It would be an oddly misplaced paragraph if Paul were speaking in verse four a about Jesus' fulfillment of the law. He's speaking about what we do now or what we should. So then what what is Paul really saying here? What he's saying is this. Not only has the death of Jesus condemned sin in such a way that the penalty of sin will never catch up with us. But Jesus death also condemns sin in such a way that those who are in Christ Jesus no longer have to be mastered by the power of sin. Jesus died to rid us of sin's penalty, verses 1 and 2, and sin's power, verses 3 and 4. To put it another way, Jesus died not only so that there would be no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but He also died so that there would be no stagnation for us, so that we don't have to continue to muck around in the same stagnant cesspools of our sins. We don't have to keep doing the same things over and over again. Because Jesus has condemned sin in the flesh, because he killed not only its penalty, but its power, it is now possible that the requirement of the law might actually be fulfilled in us. That we might actually be able to begin to do what God asks us to do. It's an amazing thing. So it's true. It is true that a good deal of the Christian life is lived struggling in the quicksand with Paul in Romans 7. More often than we would like to admit, we find ourselves, verse 15, doing the very things we hate. That's simply reality for us. But if we are in Christ Jesus, that is not the only reality for us. If we are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8, 4 is also true for us. It is possible for us to get out of the quicksand, to get out of the cesspool and to live the way God wants us to live. It is possible for you to fulfill the requirement of the law. But as with extracting oneself from quicksand, Paul is going to remind us that getting yourself out of your sins is not merely accomplished by trying harder. After all, he says, it's when the requirement of the law is fulfilled not by walking according to the flesh that we will succeed. The requirement of the law is fulfilled by those who do not walk according to the flesh. To those who, in other words, do not simply try to obey God in their own human strength. Because... While it is true that Christ died to release you from sin's power, and while it is true that you no longer have to go mucking around in the mire of sin, that doesn't mean now that all you need to do is have a Bible, know what God says, and have a little bit of willpower, and you'll be able to go and do it. No. I mean, Paul has already shown us in Romans 7 that's not the way it works. He says in verse 18, I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, And the rest of the testimony is I know what I'm supposed to do and I don't do it. And the reason I know what I'm supposed to do and I don't do it is because though I know what I'm supposed to do and though I love God's law, my willpower, my flesh is not good. Even though Christ has saved me, I still am tainted with sin. My willpower is still worthy of being called flesh. So you can discipline your life. You can read the Bible every day. You can make yourself a checklist of all the commands that it gives and you can try with all of your might sincerely to do what it says. But if you simply try with your might, you will fail. Even if you know the will of God and even if you love the will of God, you will fail. Because your might, your will, is still fleshly. It is still tainted with sin. The old man is still living in you, struggling against what you know is right. And the law by itself is not powerful enough to overcome that. Remember, the law is good, but the law is weak. Not because the law is intrinsically weak, but because you're weak. Because your flesh is weak, the law cannot help you. And so, that opening phrase of verse 3, what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, is now pregnant with even more meaning. I think we all could have said coming in tonight that we know that what the law could not do ultimately is save us. The law is not a ladder up which we climb to acceptance with God. We know that. But what happens to some of us is that once we've received acceptance with God through faith in Jesus, we fall back into the quicksand. We fall into the trap of thinking that now that we're saved, we will begin to live like we're saved by learning what God says, learning all the commandments, and then resolving with all of our might to do them. But it won't work. The Bible says that it doesn't work that way. You cannot fulfill the requirement of the law if you do it in your own strength, if you do it in the strength of your flesh. And some of you could give personal testimony to the fact that this is true. All of you could, if you're honest, because you know what God wants. And if you're a believer, you want what God wants. And you have tried seriously to discipline yourself to be able to do what God wants, and yet you find that you still do the very things that you hate. Some of you could say that even today. I could say that even today. I know what God wants. I want what God wants. I try to discipline myself and grit my teeth to do what He wants. And still today I found myself sinning and then 30 minutes later doing the exact same thing again, even after I gritted my teeth and said I'm not going to do that anymore. Why is that? It's not because I didn't try. It's not because I didn't know what God said. It's not even because I don't love God's laws. Rather, I lost my balance and you continue to lose yours and we fall again and again off of the ladder because, weak as it is through the flesh, the law cannot by itself get us on the right track. It can't. Now be careful here not advocating just throwing out God's commandments and throwing out the fact that there are all sorts of things in the Bible that we're told to do. I'm not urging you to fold up the ethical teachings of the Bible and you know, stick them in the garage somewhere as an heirloom of a bygone era and just say, well, we live by grace. The law of God can and most certainly does still point the way of faithfulness for us. It's like those giant green signs on the interstate. You're driving down the road and you haven't been paying attention, but all of a sudden you see the sign and it tells you that you only have a quarter of a mile to get over three lanes if you want to stay on the right track. And it's helpful. Without those placards, we would be totally confused. We would end up in Lexington when we're supposed to be in Louisville. But those placards, helpful as they are, cannot lay hold of the wheel of your car and steer it in the right direction, can they? You have to do that. And the problem when we shift back into the spiritual, moral realm is that even though Christ died to set us free from sin's power, and even though God has put placards up in His Word to tell us where to go, our sinful flesh doesn't always want to turn the wheel in the right direction. So even though you do not have to sin, you still find yourself doing what your flesh tells you to do you still find yourself often listening to the old man and returning to the old ways. And the law cannot do anything about that. The law is powerless to change your heart. So, what is it that the law could not do? Well, not only is the law unable to justify you, but neither can it sanctify you. In other words, the law by itself cannot make you right with God and it cannot make you do right by God. It cannot motivate you. It cannot turn the wheel for you. It can only point the way. So then, summary. Jesus has died for us so that we do not have to keep wallowing in the muck of sin. He has died so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. And God has given us His law which shows us a better way of living so that we know what the requirement is, but even though we've been set free from sin's power, and even though God has told us what we're supposed to do, we still don't always do it. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So then what's the solution? How are we going to get over? How are we going to actually begin to live more faithfully, fulfilling the requirement of the law? I'm glad you asked. Because there's an answer, thankfully, at the end of verse 4, where Paul tells us the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. That's good news. In other words, the people who actually make progress down the Christian pathway are the ones who have first of all been set from free from sin's power by Jesus, verse 3, and who, second of all, do not try to do the walking on their own, but instead, verse 4, invite the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, to be their God. It sounds, on one hand, simple. How do you begin to do what you're supposed to do? Well, just stop doing things in your own strength and start doing them in the strength of the Spirit. Simple answer, close the book. Except that when you say that, that sounds rather nebulous, doesn't it? Let's just stop doing things in your own strength and start doing them in in God's strength. But the question is, how can you tell? When you're just walking through your days trying to do what's right, how can you tell whether your gait is being kept in rhythm by the drumbeats of your flesh or by the drumbeats of the spirit? How do you know when you're walking in the spirit and when you're walking in the flesh? Sometimes it's obvious. But sometimes you're wanting to do what's right, and you don't know if it's your flesh that's going to try to carry you through or if you're really relying on the Spirit. How can you tell? Well, I have to say that in some senses it's a mystery. We don't always know while it's happening. Sometimes we see in retrospect. And we all know, too, that there are times that even when we've done nothing specific to cultivate the Holy Spirit's presence, He seems to come and take over. To put words in our mouths or to bring certain people across our paths or to motivate us to do what's right and so on. And that's part of what it means to walk by the Spirit. To know and to trust that He is going to be there when you need Him. To expect Him sometimes to do the unexpected. But, as we're going to see in more detail next week, there are some practical steps that we can take there are some things that we can do to help us keep in step with the Spirit. To help us differentiate between His rhythm for walking and our own. There are some things we can do to make sure that our attempts to please God are not simply done in our own strength or banging our own drums. Without preaching next week's sermon, I just want to give you one. Just one practical thing you can do tonight to help you live and walk not according to the flesh to help you try to obey God not in your own strength but in that of the spirit and that is preach Romans 8 1 to yourself you want to walk by the spirit and not by the flesh preach Romans 8 1 to yourself that is if you want to keep in step with the spirit if you want to Walk this Christian life according to the Spirit and not simply in your own power. One of the most important things you can do is constantly remind yourself that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How is that helpful? Well, if you're constantly reminding yourself that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, that truth will remind you day by day that as you try to fulfill the requirement of the law, verse 4, you are not doing it in order to get yourself or to keep yourself in God's good graces. And if you can remember that you are not trying to fulfill the requirement of the law to get yourself or keep yourself in God's good graces, then the pressure is released. And your life is no longer about what you must do to please God, but it is about what God has done for you. If you can keep that straight, On the front end of salvation, it will translate quite well to the back end. If you can keep it straight in justification, that your justification is because of what God has done, then it will translate well to sanctification, to this idea of walking according to the spirit and not according to the flesh. It will become, as it were, the drumbeat playing in the background of your life, keeping you in step with the spirit, because if you are constantly appreciating the grace that made you right with God, then the chances are pretty good that you will begin more readily to seek and find His grace when it comes to doing right by God. If you're constantly appreciating God's grace and making you right with God, then you will be much more likely to daily seek His grace as you try to walk with God. That's just one way to keep in step with the Spirit. Next week, God willing, we will see more. But you just try it out this week. You preach Romans 8.1 to yourself. And as you preach Romans 8.1, you will find that Romans 8.4 is true. You will find that the requirement of the law can really be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to our own willpower, but according to the Spirit.